And in that region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Isn't it interesting that the shepherds of Bethlehem were the first people to learn of the birth of the Son of God. And they learned it from a choir of angels. St. Luke places special emphasis on the humble and the lowly in these opening verses in his gospel, in the nativity story. We remember the Blessed Mother speaking of being God's lowly servant in the Magnificat. And the shepherds were certainly thought of as lonely, as lowly. The temple authorities regarded them as unclean because they were always out in the field looking after the sheep. And so they were not fit to go into the temple. But you know, God always seems to have favored shepherds. I made a list of the shepherds in the whole story of God's salvation of the human race. There are some very important people in that story who are shepherds. Abel, remember Cain and Abel, the good son, Abel. Jacob, Joseph, Moses. King David started his life as a shepherd. The prophet Amos was a shepherd. All were shepherds when God called these men to service. And now he has called these shepherds in Bethlehem to service. I wish we knew their names. We have names for the three wise men, but I don't know if anyone's ever in the tradition found names for the shepherds. They would have said, don't worry about it. The point is the message that we're bringing and those shepherds did not stay silent about the message that they received that night, about the mystery of the Savior's birth. A few verses on in Luke chapter two, Luke says that the shepherds said to each other, let us go and see. Now that's a big thing for a shepherd to do, to put down his staff, to leave his sheep in the field, and to go into town to see something while he leaves the sheep behind, that's a really big thing for a shepherd to do. Let us go and, let us go and see, they said, and they went in haste to the manger. And as they went, they told everyone the good news. I think that God puts the shepherds first in the nativity story because of the vocation of his son. Jesus came to be the good shepherd. He came to go and find the sheep who did not have a shepherd. Jesus is always a faithful shepherd, a shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep and not run away when trouble or some other opportunity arises. And the shepherds of the church who are called to follow after Jesus, they are called too to proclaim the good news to everyone and to tend the flock. Now, 
I dug this out of storage today. This was my old life. When I was chosen as an Episcopal Church bishop, way, way long ago, by the way, I talked to Archbishop Hebda about this today. I'm not using this in any official liturgical capacity. <laughs> but when I, when I was um, preparing for my, this ministry, I was on a pilgrimage in the Holy Land and I went to Bethlehem and I went out in the field and I picked wood in the pastures. So this is a kind of a relic, if you will, of Bethlehem. And uh, there was a wonderful man in Bethlehem that made this crozier for me. Now I show it to you tonight because you think about what a shepherd's supposed to be doing, what a shepherd's ministry is and what our Lord's ministry is. And this is quite useful to show. They, they put the crook all the way down, but the idea was if a sheep gets in trouble, the shepherd can reach out and pull him out of the ravine. Or if the sheep is not listening to the directions of the shepherd, he can whack him once or twice. <laughs> Kids, you know, your parents have to do that every once in a while. It's very, very important. And the other side of this is a pointed end that is designed to fight off the wolves when they come, to fight off those that would seize the sheep. And this is a marvelous metaphor of what Jesus Christ has come to do. And that he would have chosen these humble shepherds in Bethlehem to be the first to bring the good news of his birth, I think shows us how deeply he valued this ministry of shepherd. And we should be so thankful that the Lord is our shepherd. He protects us. Sometimes properly, he disciplines us. If need be, he can drive away the evil one. And it's just a marvelous metaphor of the ministry that our Lord Jesus Christ has come to exercise. By the way, I just was looking at that and I remembered something. You might appreciate this. Um, that has been repaired once. The crook broke once while I was on a ministry. And I bet you can't even guess where that was. Roswell, New Mexico. <laughs> so there were strange creatures about that night. <laughs> um, there's one other thing I would like to say about those first characters at the beginning of the nativity story. Those were the angels. And it's a marvelous picture of the angels that have all assembled to rejoice at the birth of the Son of God. The church has understood that there are different orders of angels. 
There are our guardian angels, of course. They're the ones that are doing all the heavy lifting to take care of us in this world. There are also angels of the nations. And then there are the angels that behold the face of God in heaven, the angels of adoration. And the church believes that on the nativity, all of the angels were together. They came, it was a great angelic reunion because they were rejoicing at the birth of the Son of God who has come into this world now to restore fallen humanity. I love, I just love these words from Pope St. Gregory the Great, perhaps our greatest Pope. And he wrote these words about the angels of Bethlehem. Before the Redeemer was born of the flesh, there was discord between us and the angels from whose brightness and holy perfection we were separated in punishment first of original sin and then because of our daily offenses. Because through sin we had become strangers to God, the angels as God's subjects cut us off from their fellowship. But since we have now acknowledged our King, the angels receive us as fellow citizens. Because the King of heaven has taken unto himself the flesh of our earth, the angels from the heavenly heights no longer look down upon our infirmity. Now they are at peace with us, putting away the remembrance of ancient discord. Now the angels honor us as friends, whom before they considered weak and despised. Isn't that a beautiful image that Pope Gregory the Great gives us of those angels that were surrounding the shepherds that night and they came and rejoiced over the infant Jesus nativity cradle? It's such a beautiful picture to us of all of creation, both in this world and in the world out there. All have come together to rejoice in the birth of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. St. Mary the Virgin is the mother of God, but for a long time, she probably did not understand the depth of that mystery. Mary knew that God had called her to be his instrument in the greatest work of all, but the Gospels provide ample evidence that her mind and her understanding did not lead her heart and her will. It was the other way around. She followed her heart and she was obedient to the words of God. Why, Mary wondered, did the angel Gabriel welcome her at the Annunciation as full of grace? For the Blessed Mother, Obedience comes first. Knowledge follows later. This is such a fundamental spiritual principle, but it does not come easy to us. Knowledge requires that our first steps be taken in faith. There is one verse from the gospel narrative of the birth of the Messiah that perfectly expresses what happens when devotion encounters the mystery. 
But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. This was after the visit of the shepherds to the manger, after they had told Mary and Joseph that the angels had appeared in the field and announced to them this great joy that shall be for all people. Here was the mystery revealed. Mary did not at that point fully comprehend but rather than setting this news aside as something which had no immediate and practical use to her, Mary kept it and she treasured it in her heart. Now it was perhaps much later, perhaps some 35 years later, when the full import of Mary's yes to God became clear to her. Christian tradition tells us that Mary went with the Apostle John, whom Jesus had charged from the cross with the responsibility of taking care of his mother. There in Ephesus, John composed the fourth gospel. Who can doubt that there Mary would have been reflecting with John about the meaning of her motherhood, about the meaning of what she experienced in Bethlehem? It's fascinating that there is in John's gospel no account of the manger in Bethlehem. There are no shepherds, no angels or wise men, but these first 18 verses of John's gospel tell us of the coming of the Son of God from his heavenly Father's point of view. The full meaning of what Mary experienced as the mother of Jesus now is unveiled. The things that Mary treasured in her heart now come into full bloom. John wrote these words, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here, John takes us to a whole new level of understanding. Who is the we in this verse? We beheld him. Well, certainly it refers to the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. But it also includes Mary. Mary, his mother, is included in the we. I can't help but get it out of my mind when I read the prologue of John's gospel, to imagine the Blessed Mother looking over John's shoulder as he wrote these words. Yes, yes, that's it. That's my divine son, whom I had the great joy of bearing and holding in my arms. Mary's faith brought her understanding, and she was indeed full of grace and truth but it begins with love and faith. And we meet to pray for our friends and our family who may have gotten lost along the way. It's, it's wonderful to see families together at Christmas time, but there may be some that aren't there. You may be thinking today of brothers or sisters 
or cousins or people in, in your closest friendships who aren't with you. They think, oh, well, Christmas is a lovely time. It's a wonderful time to get together, but all of those superstitions that you Christian people go in for, um, okay, it's pretty. And it just breaks your heart when you hear people talking like that, when they lose their faith. I think if we have in mind today, just imagine as John wrote these words of the gospel, the Blessed Mother looking over his shoulder and helping him along with those words. And to think of what, just with, with thanksgiving, we thank God that by grace we have the love and the faith that has helped us to come to understanding about the truth of what we proclaim this Christmas time. I want to close with an, a prayer that's found at the back of the Liturgy of the Hours. There's, I don't know if you've ever taken a volume of the four volumes of the Liturgy of the Hours. In the very back is a set of poetry. And this one is from perhaps the greatest hymn writer in the English language, the early 17th century man, George Herbert. And I've always loved this hymn and, and this poem. It's, it's a short one. I'm going to try to read it. It is George Herbert, who is I and you, having a conversation with Jesus, who has invited us to come to his supper. Jesus' love in this poem. Love made me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? Well, my dear, then I shall serve. No, you must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. What a beautiful picture of the privilege that is given to us because of the faith that we have brought to receive Christ in this sacrament of his body and blood. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.